My name is Matt Hergy. Last weekend, Edmonton Public Library writer-in-residence Omar Mualem took part in the three-day novel contest. As the name would suggest, the contest is a literary marathon where participants are asked to test their wits and their sanity by attempting to write a 50,000-word novel in just 72 hours. Now, you'd think that this task would be helped along with a fair dose of caffeine, but in Omar's case, consuming massive amounts of coffee, well, it sadly backfired. I, I over-caffeinated myself the first day, so by 12 o'clock I, I was actually physically shaking and I had to take a good one-hour break just to come back down. So I learned my pace both with uh, writing and with coffee. It's the CJSR edition. The CJSR edition. The CJSR edition. This is the CJSR edition, broadcasting from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, on 88.5 FM and CJSR.com. Edition. This week, we'll hear from a drowsy Omar Mualem, fresh off a novel that he wrote in just three days. But despite the achievement, it's doubtful that the author will ever release it to the public. I, I, I had much higher expectations, both for the quality and the quantity of the story. You will probably never read it. Plus, we'll hear about a course at the University of Alberta that's using cutting-edge technologies to teach about animals that existed 200 million years ago. Then later, schools back from summer, and the University of Alberta is a sometimes intriguing, sometimes confusing place. CJSR's Bob Brophy gives it to you straight. That's all this week on the CJSR edition. Stay with us. Many of us spent this past Labor Day long weekend camping or getting ourselves and our children ready for school, longing to reverse the clock so that we could just have one more day of summer. Omar Mualem, however, spent it checking a box from his bucket list. Over the course of 72 hours, the Edmonton Public Library writer-in-residence successfully wrote his first novel as part of the three-day novel contest. The book, which is threaded with service cats and potato launchers, features a plot that even the author admits is horribly, laughingly cliched. But nevertheless, the goal of completing a novel in just 72 hours, 72 hours, it's been accomplished. And the day after he wrote the book, CJSR dragged the droopy-eyed, exasperated Omar Mualem into our studios to talk about what it's like to accomplish something in just three days 
that some people spend a lifetime just dreaming about. Omar Muralem, welcome to the CJSR edition. So you just are fresh off finishing a, a 50,000 word book. Uh, I tried for 50,000. Where did you get to? 30,000. 30, I finished it in 30,000. It's a finished story. I, I, I had much higher expectations, both for the quality and the quantity of the story going into the three-day novel writing contest. But after day one, I realized that what I had in mind was, was physically and mentally impossible. So talk me through the process. How did it all start? Sure. Um, I mean, it, it started It started probably about um, in November when, when I was thinking, when I, when I was uh, confirmed as the writer-in-resident for the Edmonton Public Library, and I started thinking, well, what, what kind of projects can I use to engage library patrons in a, in a literary way that, um, that was fun, but also had some sort of, some sort of interactivity to it. So one of the ideas was um, to do the three-day novel writing contest um, as sort of a performance art piece. I had, uh, in that same month, I, I spent three days in West Edmonton Mall for an article in Avenue Magazine. So this felt like a, uh, an interesting sequel. So I would spend uh, three days writing a novel as part of the international three-day novel writing contest. And I would do it in the gallery at the Edmonton Public Library, Stanley Milner location. It would be a bit of a performance piece where people can interact with me either through a hashtag three day novel WIR or through a physical bucket inside. It was called the writer's block bucket that they could write ideas, plot twists, writing prompts, uh, encouraging phrases, discouraging phrases. People threw money in there. Um, someone left me a juice box. So uh, whatever they left in there, I tried to integrate into the process, uh, minus the change. That change went to the Second Cup staff because Second Cup sponsored me with coffee all weekend. So take me through the process of crafting a three-day book, sitting mm-hmm. in front of your la- in, in front of your laptop at the library. Well, I I'd outlined the story completely in my head, and then on paper in a little bit more detail um, about quarter ways through so I wasn't going in completely blind I mean no nobody does you'd be insane to do that well maybe not um but I, I doubt you would be able to get to the ending of the of your story you might meander out of control if you don't know the arc so I knew my arc on Friday night I I went to bed at 10 o'clock something I probably haven't done since I was oh I don't know 11 and I woke up at six got right to it. I started at my home and then when the library doors opened at nine o'clock, I went to the library and I completed the rest of the day there. I I started off, I think I started off to, I I started off really well. I thought well enough. (laughs) I like my first chapter, but I mean, to give you an idea of just how much I had, uh, how much attention that first chapter got, it was 4,200 words. After that, I was lucky to have a chapter a 1,000 words long, right? But at the end of that first chapter, I realized, okay, that took way longer than it should. I need to be writing a chapter every two hours. This took me five and a half hours. I can't, I can't keep at this pace. So I, I started to speed it up a little bit. Um, still giving a lot of detail, still giving a lot of character development, um, but I really, really pushed myself on Saturday night, uh, or the whole day Saturday. 
and uh, my head was spinning by the time I got to bed and I tried to get a good night's rest but it, it just it kept me up I was dead tired but my, my mind was just overstimulated um, the next day I tried to repeat it and I just failed and uh, my expectation of 50,000 words went down to 40,000 words went down to 35,000 words by the end of it is 30,000 words just a smidge underneath which I learned is average completely average average book in the novel writing contest is 30,000 words so could you describe to me what what the book is about what sure. what does it um it is both a murder mystery and a romantic comedy um yeah I wasn't exactly trying to write grapes of wrath uh over the weekend I chose a comedy because that that comes a little bit more naturally to to my fiction writing, and I chose a murder mystery because um, well two reasons one a murder mystery has a formula I thought if I have a formula in front of me it'll it'll help plot the story it did not actually I I kind of wish that I didn't try to write such a conventional murder mystery because it it felt like I was forcing motives i was forcing reason reason that's that's wholly unbelievable <laughs> um the other reason is um so the, the story is about a, a disgraced uh journalist a former intrepid crime reporter who the last job he can get is in this small town like the one i grew up in high prairie and uh, he works for this weekly paper and um, he has a service cat uh, a therapy cat that is supposed to help him with his um anger management problems and it and it's it's going well until one day he finds out that his cat was murdered and the cat was murdered with a potato launcher and then using his old investigative skills he tries to solve the murder um so it's totally ridiculous um but however it's it's kind of inspired by uh something true a friend of mine a a crime reporter really fantastic crime reporter uh did one day come home to find her cat had been uh, shot and killed with a BB gun, and I thought, what what would that be like for um, for a crime reporter to suddenly have this uh, to suddenly have this mystery in their lives that they're trying to solve that they can't really do through the newspaper, but they would want to do it through their personal life. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know. And so the book is called Wump. Um, you will probably never read it. Um, it is a contestant, um, and the winner does the winner does get published. I don't think that it's going to win. Um, I would be blown away if it made the short list, but hey, you know, we'll see. Um, it's called Wump. Wump is the nickname for one of my cats. And uh, and so that's... So I, I wrote about three things that I know very well. Small towns, journalism, and cats. I also think that title could also be interpreted as... Uh, an author putting writing it at the very end when he after writing it for three days he's like this is womp womp yeah it has it has a lot of sadness to it that's why i liked it womp and the characters are very sad people all of them every single one of them very very sad pathetic pathetic people you described it uh, as a head spinning dead tired experience mm-hmm. and you're yawning right in front of me right now yeah. so I can completely empathize with you what was the the biggest challenge the editing process actually was uh, much tougher than I thought it was going to be I thought I was going to get to the end and it was going to feel so satisfying and then I you know take a shower go for a bike ride and start editing but I actually didn't finish editing it and I, I finished the book at about um 2 p.m., 2.30 p.m. yesterday. So quite a bit of time. There was still uh, nine and a half hours to edit it. 
but I, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know how to speed edit something that is just kind of a inherent mess. <laughs> so I would say I got about uh, two thirds in editing it, cleaning it up. And then I just, I was running out of time. So I was like, okay, what's missing? I started filling in some holes, some plot holes and uh, got the job done. There was, there was one chapter where I, I must've cracked out a thousand words in 40 minutes. And so that one needed a lot of attention toward the end. So I think I, I was really surprised by, by how much effort that was. Was the whole process unexpected to you? I came at it with different expectations. I thought that I was just going to, I had this image of myself just like type, 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 typing the whole time. But actually there was way more thinking time than, than writing time in the end. It, it didn't, it, it didn't flow off my fingers as quickly and naturally as I expected it to. Though I don't know why I thought that that, that it would. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a writer. My career is a writer. I that's what I do. I write, and nothing ever just flows off my fingertips so easily. Um, even if I've spent the last several months thinking it through from beginning to end, what was the process? Inherently, it would be different than writing, say, other forms of deadline-driven nonfiction because this is fiction. But was it yeah. different? I mean, I, I should say. I mean, it should be known that the the one of the points of the three-day novel writing contest is to see, is to realize just how much care and time and how much effort goes into a good novel. I mean, as, as an artist, sometimes you have people think um, or say that, uh, oh, I could do that. You know, you see this a lot at at, uh, at craft shows or at makers markets. You know, you see people pick up something that that they think that they could just make in their own bedroom, and they don't they don't understand why it costs a hundred dollars or fifty dollars or even twenty dollars. And like, oh, I can make that. And so, a lot of people, I think, feel the same way about writing a novel. I mean, it's on everyone's bucket list. Everyone wants to write a novel, and eh, I think that's a noble as a noble thing. Have um, you ever done it before? Write a novel? No, mm-hmm. no. I've written. Um, I wrote one published book and I wrote one unpublished book, but they were both nonfiction. So the point of it is kind of to show that, okay, this is what happens when you just try to crank something out in in three days. Um, But there's some magic in it and there are some gems and there is some, there's actually some real goodness that comes out of this uh, free association or this... um, this this extreme pressure this endurance contest and there were there were actually some things in there that i liked i don't think this book can be a good book i don't think the story is good enough but there were some techniques and there were some lines and there were some characters in there that i actually really liked maybe they'll find themselves in a book in the future and uh, i and i also learned a lot about my capabilities of just being able to um actually commit to something and complete it. If you can think back, uh, what was perhaps a particular moment of writing magic? Oh, um, I always find it odd how modern TV um, and modern books, books, let's just talk books, modern books, especially though it's, it's really in all, um, in most modern art forms, don't really, or storytelling rather, they don't really... Um, parallel how we receive information and communicate these days. So 
20 years ago, even 15 years ago, it was normal to be in a room with one people, five people, and that was the only conversation happening. But of course, with text messages and emails and Facebook and all the, the social media or the, let's just say, digital communications that uh, interfere with our daily moments, those are, I mean, that that's a genuine way of learning something or communicating with people. And you just don't see it in books. People are, there's always this kind of artificial two people in a room situation where they have a dialogue and there's no interference. Well, that's that's just inherently not true. So I tried to write, um, not throughout the entirety of the book, but in many of the scenes, what I thought were more genuine situations where people were communicating with who's in front of them as well as who's on the phone. And you're, as a reader, you're learning information, even by things like missed calls um, or text messages or something that someone finds in a Twitter feed. Th- those are all ways that you can drive a story forward now. Um, so I, I, I impressed myself, I guess, in being able to uh, weave that through the book in a way that wasn't jarring, that wasn't um, discombobulating in any way that I actually felt was genuine. So all in all, would you say this is a, a success and take also taking into account community <laughs> outreach as well, which you said was yeah, really absolutely. Part. We um, I got a lot of people um, at the library who who maybe aren't usually interested in the writer in residence program finding out or even even knew what the writer in residence program learning what the writer in residence did and the fact that there is a writer in residence at the library and that he that I am there to help them with their stories and I liked it because now they were helping me with with my story I got 50 motives to kill a cat I got a bunch of weird imagery that uh, that people had contributed through the writer's block bucket that did find its way into into the book. And I, and I think I showed people that this thing on their bucket list, this, this novel that they have put off for 10 years, 20 years, forever and ever, actually, it, it can be done. It can be done if you just find the time to commit to it. I would not recommend trying to cram it into 72 hours, but, but maybe a month. I mean, what's a month of your life, right? to get something that is important to a lot of people out of the way or or to try it and get better at it and you know pursue a, a loftier goal or a better story in the future and i i at least get to say that i've done it but i i've also i think had a bit of a rude awakening of of the novel writing process myself hopefully this this has uh taught me something at least about pacing about story arcs you know, I haven't actually written something, I haven't written something fictional this long before, and I feel a little bit more prepared to write something of meaning, a book that I would actually want people to remember me for. Um, I feel a little bit more prepared to do that now. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, thank you. And I, I, I guess all I can say is go get some sleep. Okay. And, uh, hope that yeah, I, thank I'll you. Read more stuff. Yeah, I hope some of that, any of that made sense. I'm pretty zonked right now. Omar Mualam is the writer-in-residence at the Edmonton Public Library. He just finished writing a 30,000-word novel as part of the three-day novel contest. And as if it couldn't get any more prolific than that, Omar's travel, food, and society writing has appeared in dozens of magazines and newspapers worldwide. The Omar Mualam byline is truly ubiquitous. 
and I dare say, he is one of the most talented writers in Edmonton today. This is the CJSR edition, and we'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to the CJSR edition on 88.5 FM in Edmonton, 102.7 Cable FM, and around the world on cjsrnews.com. A new initiative at the University of Alberta has people around the world roaring with approval. That's because this fall, the U of A is offering its first massive online course. Essentially, a university-level class offered over the internet and available to anyone with an internet connection for free. And in a first for a Canadian university, more than 300 students of the more than 15,000 people who have signed up for the class will be taking the MOOC for credit. And here's where it gets better. As if the class could be about anything else, this one's about dinosaurs. It's Dino 101. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to speak with world-famous paleontologist and instructor of Dino 101, Phil Curry, at his laboratory. I'm, I'm Phil Curry. I'm uh, actually a dinosaur paleontologist who works in the biology department. Uh, I've been here for seven or eight years now, and um, but uh, lived in Alberta for, I don't know, 35, 40 years collecting dinosaurs. Your CV is quite substantial. Can you talk me through it? <laughs> well, that would take a long time because <laughs> I've been around for a long time. Um, the main thing is that... Uh, uh, I was when I was a kid. I was growing up in the Toronto area, and uh, I learned fairly early on that uh, all the dinosaurs from Canada come from Alberta. So I decided by the time I was 12 years old, actually, that I was going to move to Alberta. And uh, by the time I graduated from McGill University, um, I got a job out at the Provincial Museum of Alberta. Subsequent to that, um, we split off of the Provincial Museum to build the Terrell Museum of Paleontology. Um, subsequent to that, I decided to come to the University of Alberta, and um, I guess the rest is history. <laughs> you said that your love of dinosaurs goes back to 12 years old? Actually, earlier than that, I, I started loving dinosaurs when I was six years old. I had opened a box of cereal, and there was a plastic dinosaur inside, and that got me hooked uh, right there. So I spent the next little while hunting dinosaurs in the sense of uh, I'd get my parents to buy more and more boxes of Rice Krispies, and I was looking for the T-Rex, which I never got. <laughs> never turned up. I eventually bought it uh, many, many years later, but uh, so I eventually completed my set. But it was, it was kind of funny that um, of all the ones to not get, it was Tyrannosaurus Rex. And since moving to Alberta, I've collected two Tyrannosaurus Rexes. <laughs> real, real Tyrannosaurus Rexes. Exactly. <laughs> uh, where, were th where, where, where did you find those? They were found uh, down, one was near Drumheller. It's very close to Dry Island Provincial Park, actually, on a private ranch called the T-Rex Ranch now. And then the other one was from the Crow's Nest Pass. 
and we weren't really expecting to find one there. It was found by a couple of kids who were fishing and weren't having much luck, so they decided to look for fossils, and they, in 1981, found a T-Rex. Not bad. <laughs> Can you talk me through the process of uncovering a fossil like that? Um, T-Rex is not my favorite dinosaur to work on, believe me. I, I mean, it's one of my favorite dinosaurs to do research on, but in terms of actually excavating them, it's, it's a difficult dinosaur to work on because it's uh, so big. And uh, really, it's uh, pretty much our largest dinosaur here in Alberta. So when we find a T-Rex, we're in trouble. <laughs> and especially if they happen to be in very hard rock. So normally what we would do is um, you find them sticking out of the rocks, essentially, out of the sides of the rocks, because they're laying horizontally. And then you have to dig all the overburden down above it to get down to that layer. And unfortunately, in both cases uh, of our T-Rexes from Alberta, they've been in very steep cliffs. And so we've had to remove many, many, many tons of rock. And then when we get down to the dinosaur, it turns out that the dinosaur is in a very hard type of rock itself. For the uh, specimen north of Drumheller, for example, uh, our largest jacket, uh, this is plaster and burlap, that encase the bones and the rock together so that you can move them from the field to the laboratory where you can do the preparation. But our largest jacket weighed 11 tons. Uh, trying to manipulate things like that is, is not my idea of fun. So I much rather work on some of the smaller dinosaurs, especially if they come from uh, softer rock. <laughs> so tell me what, what, what most intrigues you about dinosaurs today? I think uh, for me it's always been the same. It's the fact we have so many questions when it comes to dinosaurs. Um, you know, dinosaurs are popular and people tend to think that uh, they're well known. The, the reality is quite the opposite though. Uh, we've only known of dinosaurs for about 150 years, and that sounds like a lot, except that in most of that history of collecting dinosaurs, there haven't been that many dinosaurs collected or done research on. Uh, we're kind of in a golden age right now where uh, many people are working on dinosaurs around the world. Uh, and in fact, more people are working on dinosaurs right now than ever before in history. In fact, um, I'm willing to bet that the number of people working on dinosaurs right now equals all of the people who've worked on dinosaurs for the 140 uh, years before this. <laughs> so uh, dinosaurs are certainly going through a renewed popularity, but if you look at um, what we actually know, uh, we can say that uh, you know, at most maybe a thousand species of dinosaurs are known. That sounds like a lot. But when you realize that they live worldwide, uh, every single continent, they um, uh, basically dominated the world for 150 million years, and that uh, every two million years, all those dinosaurs would have died out and been replaced by other species, then you realize that a thousand species is absolutely nothing. In fact, we probably know less than 1% of the dinosaurs that existed. The other exciting thing about dinosaurs is just we're learning so much about their biology right now. We're learning that there were very good reasons that they were the dominant animals for 150 million years. And uh, the technology has is, is improved so much in recent years that we're doing things that we never would have thought possible even 10 or 15 years ago. So, for example, uh, we've, in fact, uh, recovered... Um, melanosomes from feathers, for example, and the feathers are on dinosaurs, and those melanosomes tell us what the colors of those feathers were. Uh, we have um, blood vessels in some Tyrannosaurus rex bones now, and those blood vessels have red blood cells in them. 
we have a tremendous amount of information on the biomechanics of the animals. So the dinosaurs you see in modern movies, of course, are very different than the dinosaurs you saw in movies 30 or 40 years ago. And that's because our understanding of the biomechanics and how dinosaurs moved has changed so much. Even our understanding of dinosaur behavior has changed a lot. And you think, well, how can you tell dinosaur behavior from looking at fossils? But um, you, you can, in fact, uh, look at many sites in Alberta where we have dinosaurs that were walking across mudflats. And essentially, you're looking at what the dinosaurs were doing when they were alive. And in some cases, you can see how they interact. We have big bone beds, even here in Edmonton, uh, where those bone beds show that the dinosaurs were... Um, living together up to the time that they died. And these are big herds of dinosaurs. So uh, a lot of things that we uh, didn't think were possible to know about dinosaurs, we're actually learning now. I imagine that would be a very interesting area of study then for yourself to spend so much time in, th in studying dinosaurs for the last 30 or 40 years. And then every day is, is new knowledge comes and new ideas are formed around dinosaurs. That's, that's exactly right. And it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. I like the field work a lot. I like finding dinosaurs. I mean, that's really exciting when you uncover something and you realize you're the first person who's ever seen this. And uh, as you uncover the fossil in preparation to take it out, of course, you're analyzing it. And in some cases, it's just another uh, centrosaurus, for example, or something like that. And in other cases, it's a brand new dinosaur. But even if it's not a brand new dinosaur, sometimes those, um, those dinosaurs that you have so many of from before... Uh, it turns out that uh, it's been uh, bitten by a tyrannosaur and then escaped and the bones have all healed up or uh, there's always some story associated with these specimens that, that makes it fun and exciting to, to work on. In the laboratory, uh, of course, uh, we see an extension of that when the specimens get prepared, but uh, also when we do the research, uh, we find that uh, there's new knowledge that we get from it. So for me, it doesn't matter whether it's summer or winter, whether I'm indoors or outdoors, it's always exciting. Do you think that um, that idea that there's always new knowledge out there accounts for the resurgence of interest in dinosaurs today? I, I think it does, and there, there, I think there's other reasons too. So, for example, dinosaurs, you know, originally were interesting to people because they were big and bizarre and very strange. And now we're finding out that they're not all big, they're not all bizarre, that uh, many of them, in fact, uh, look very much like modern birds, and that makes sense because they gave rise to birds. Also, the fact that um, dinosaurs really aren't dead because birds are the living descendants of dinosaurs, and technically, uh, in a modern uh, paleontological or biological classification, uh, dinosaurs, in fact, are still alive. Birds are dinosaurs. They're classified as that. Uh, and that means that uh, has a little more meaning to us, I think, than, than it did before when you were looking at sort of an interesting group that had gone extinct. In a way, they were failures, or so we thought. Uh, they were anything but failures. It's, it's uh, pretty amazing that when you look at uh, modern animals like alligators and birds, uh, you can, in fact, learn something about dinosaurs, too. And, and I think that's kind of fun. One reason that... Um, paleontologists get excited about modern animals is very often you you need to make the analogies with crocodiles or birds and uh, you ask a question about dinosaurs and then you realize that the work hasn't been done on the modern animals to answer that question so you end up having to take a slight divergence to look at the modern animals and try and sort this out sometimes get a research paper out of it and then then you can apply it to dinosaurs but uh, that's sometimes a long way around <laughs> You're listening to the CJSR Edition on 88.5 FM in Edmonton 
and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Matt Hergy. Today my guest is Dr. Phil Curry. Curry is Curator of Dinosaurs at the University of Alberta Laboratory for Vertebrae Paleontology and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. This fall, he will be the lead instructor of the University of Alberta's first massive online course, Dino 101. I spoke with Curry at his laboratory at the University of Alberta. Okay, so tell me about Dino 101. It's a new massive online course that the University of Alberta is uh, initiating this this fall. Um, tell me what this course is all about. Well, Dino 101 is uh, a course, a way to capitalize on people's interest in dinosaurs. And for me, it was kind of exciting to get involved in doing this simply because it represents a different way of teaching. So you're learning something in the, in the process as well. And uh, of course, you have the chance of reaching far more people than you ever have reached before. Um, right now, there's about 13,000 people signed up for Dino 101. It's um, that's not bad, considering we've only been advertising for about the last two weeks. <laughs> and um, we expect it'll get bigger, and of course it'll be around for, for many years to come. Uh, Dino 101 is, of course, an introductory course to dinosaurs. It's meant to be a university course. It um, actually crosses with some of our own interests here in, in terms that um, uh, vertebrate paleontology is taught at the University of Alberta. You can take a specialization in paleontology. And uh, we always felt that we should have uh, a second year level course. And so from Dino 101, what we've done is now turned that into two second year courses, uh, what we call Paleo 200 and Paleo 201. Uh, basically, Paleo 200 is just the MOOC, um, so people can go to uh, well, they don't go to class in this case. They, they do it at home on their own computers, and then uh, they do have to come for a midterm exam and a final exam, though. So in the end, uh, you get a credit for it. And uh, it seemed to us like this is um, an interesting way to try and see how we can turn uh, MOOCs into not just a interesting learning experience for the student, but also allow them to take credit for it. And we have no idea where this is going to go in the long run, but it seems to be successful too because that class is full. The other course, uh, Paleo 201, is a course where um, you just do the MOOC, but we also have field trips and guest lectures and so on. So you learn a little bit extra, there's a little bit of value added to this whole thing. And um, we're very interested in seeing, of course, not only how um, Dino 101 goes, but how the other two courses go as well and how they integrate and what it says about um, possibly uh, teaching in the future. For us, of course, the experience of uh, teacher-student uh, interaction is a very important thing, and I, I'm not sure that Dino 101 is going to accomplish everything that we hope it will, but uh, by incorporating it into one of our introductory courses, the Paleo 200, we're hoping that uh, this will prove to be a good way for us to do the introductory course and then the subsequent courses would be done differently. What then was the initial inspiration to develop Dino 101 as a massive online course? Well, we have to uh, uh, attribute that to the, uh, uh, the Dean of Science, Jonathan Schaefer. It was his idea. I frankly had never even heard of MOOCs before. <laughs> And uh, he approached us um, less than a year ago now, actually, 
and uh, said, uh, you know, uh, this is something that the University of Alberta specializes in, dinosaurs. People are interested in dinosaurs. Um, obviously, if you're producing a MOOC, you want it to be massive and, and go international and reach a lot of people. So it seemed like um, a good match. And uh, we had no idea at the time that um, a year later we'd uh, be on the ground, so to speak, and uh, that so much has passed under the bridge. Um, and the course is now produced and we'll go ahead. What has that one year been like to develop it and and get it in a, in a more substantial form than just an idea? Well, uh, of course, you can't produce something this big that fast without a lot of help. And so it turned out to be very much of a team effort from a lot of people on campus, people like filmmakers and, and sound people and uh, artists and uh, uh, people specializing in the uh, the digital end of the whole thing and how you do these things, technicians, uh, scientists. Our students all got involved in various ways, and um, I'm willing to bet that in the end, probably more than 20 to 30 people were involved in the development of this course. It's the only reason we were able to do it fast. It... Uh, uh, leaves you sometimes uh, wondering how it's ever going to all come together. So I, I have to say there was some stress involved in, <laughs> in getting it together as well. But um, uh, now we're waiting to see how it's going to turn out. The problem is that when you're involved in something like this, and it was very much the same when we produced the Terrell Museum of Paleontology, for example, that um, uh, you tend to focus more on the things that you see as shortcomings, things you didn't get around to doing, things that you didn't get around to doing the way you wanted to do it, and so on. And uh, yet, uh, when people from outside uh, come in and they took a, take a look at it, after you hear their reactions for a while, then you start to realize that, well, you haven't done such a bad job after all. We know we have areas that we can improve, and uh, when the course is offered again next year, it'll have the improvements built into it. But then I'm sure we're going to find there are other shortcomings or things have changed in paleontology and we have to do things slightly different. So it'll still have to be developed and still have to uh, move ahead in, in new forms and new formats. Some things will work, some things won't work. So it's a process of refinement then as you go along. And it, it, Do you imagine there'd be different technologies integrated into this in the future? I think so. I mean, already we've tried to integrate as many technologies as we could into this so that, uh, in fact, we can maximize the visitor experience with this. So, for example, we have uh, CAT scanned many of the skulls of dinosaurs at the uh, University of Alberta. And these CAT scans, of course, then can be used to produce uh, digital models, which are three-dimensional, and they can be put on a screen and the students can actually manipulate these models. And I think this is a, a very interesting kind of technology. I think it's going to improve in the future so it looks even better so maybe you can uh, peel it away and look at the inside of the skull for example we can do that ourselves but trying to bring that to um, a big audience like this is, is a more difficult thing so certainly as as the technology improves and as we learn about other technologies that might be available to us then then um, I'm hoping we're going to uptake on these things and incorporate them into um, uh, something that uh, people wouldn't have thought was all that modern ie paleontology and dinosaurs. <laughs> So what sort of other challenges were involved in developing this, and were those challenges what you expected? I guess the initial challenge, as far as I could see it, was uh, trying to find a way of doing this so that um, 
it's not just a talking head. It's not just a lecture uh, that's put on film and essentially and then broadcast over the internet. On the other hand, you don't want to do what television does either because why not just do television then? We wanted to do something that was, was quite different and so we had to do a combination of um, a little bit of television, a little bit of uh, building in interaction and quizzes and questions and so on. We had to do uh, certainly some talking heads. You can't avoid that. And that's uh, uh, also what people do want to see a certain amount of, but not too much of it, of course. And then trying to uh, keep it interesting. Uh, you know, we had messages that we had to get across, and uh, for me it was uh, an interesting process where, in essence, what we did was we decided what we had to cover in the course, and then we looked at the end of the course and how we were going to test people on this. And then you start to build from the bottom up once you know where you're going. <laughs> and um, so it gives you a very different kind of perspective than we normally do. I mean, uh, when I normally put a lecture together, it's kind of organic, you know. It's it's uh, you have a sense of what you want to say and what you want to do, and then your exam comes much later. You build up um, from what you've been talking about and what you know you've talked about, but you don't normally go to the end and try and integrate the whole package right from the beginning to the end. So it was a, a very much of a learning process for me, and I. Th I think, um, I think it was very successful. It's fairly well documented that one of the one of the challenges with massive online courses outside of the U of A is engagement in the long term. So uh, something I think the statistic is one out of every one hundred people who sign up for a class will actually even take the first quiz. Are there strategies that that U of A has developed to to combat that? Well, of course, we, we did look at other MOOCs and uh, tried to get uh, a sense of uh, what was working what wasn't working on them. Um, certainly, there are MOOCs that fail completely. They, they don't even finish uh, because they have such a, an extreme dropout. I don't think any of them really have high percentage of people completing. Um, and we're hoping we can do better than that by making it interesting and by trying to keep the, uh, the students involved. And um, I think we have a chance because of the fact that um, uh, people are so interested in dinosaurs. And there are so many dinosaur geeks out there who really want to do this. Um, we, uh, of course, have a different kind of classroom here. And people do learn in different ways. And so we're trying to uh, give the students as much flexibility as possible too. So for example, some people do very well um, just taking it uh, at their own pace, uh, one lecture a week maybe or one lesson per week, uh, but other people get really into it and when they start something they want to finish it. Um, so they want to see a whole series of television shows on CD for example rather than having to wait for them to come out one at a time. Um, but it's the same kind of concept. By giving them that kind of flexibility and freedom then we're hoping as well we can hold their interest longer. We uh, don't know how well it's going to work obviously at this stage, but uh, we're hoping that because of the subject matter and because of the fact that uh, we've done our homework, uh, we've tried to learn what's worked for other MOOCs and what hasn't, we'll just see what happens. Uh, you, you made mention of it, but maybe if you could just elaborate, what can people, what can students expect throughout the whole course? Like, w What sorts of things will they be learning? What will the course material be like? Well, because it's a, a course that's not just 
uh, an introductory course to dinosaurs. It's also an introductory course to paleontology. We want to eventually, as I said, uh, eventually use this as um, our introductory course for more advanced courses in paleontology. So we do have to teach the basics. And uh, we also recognize that uh, many of the students just don't have the kind of background that's necessary for understanding the science of dinosaurs unless you teach them some of the basics of biology and geology, for example. So um, the course does cover quite a bit of uh, science overall, and we're hoping that uh, even if in the long run they're not super interested in dinosaurs and uh, fallout, that they'll be interested in maybe other aspects of science and, and follow up on those things. The main thing I hope to get out of this is, is that people are generally not aware of how much research that's going on on dinosaurs right now, and they're not aware of how much we've learned over the years. And for me, this became really, really obvious when the movie Jurassic Park came out. And in 1993, uh, when it was released, uh, we saw an incredible change in the public uh, perception of dinosaurs. And I realized for the first time that Hollywood had an absolutely huge impact on people's education. And I never would have guessed that. Um, but I realized that for the first time, really people had a 1930s King Kong version of dinosaurs in their head in that uh, all the questions I would get every time I gave a lecture anywhere or uh, the letters I got and uh, phone calls and, and so on, they always ask the same kinds of questions. And, and of course, we'd been changing the field quite dramatically since the 1970s. We knew a lot more about biology. We knew a lot more about um, whether dinosaurs were, for course, uh, for example, uh, warm-blooded or cold-blooded, whether uh, dinosaurs, in fact, were still alive as birds, and so on. So all those ideas were developing in the 1970s. But it just seemed that... Um, You'd go to the next lecture, next public lecture, and you'd get asked still the same questions, which were 1930s dinosaur versions. And uh, then Jurassic Park came out, and in 1993, within a space of months, the questions I started getting from the public had changed dramatically. And now people were asking about warm-blooded dinosaurs, people were asking about the origin of birds, people were asking about intelligence in dinosaurs and everything else. These things are all subliminal in Jurassic Park. They're, they're not in your face, but they're there if you want to look for them. And yet the public got it. And um, so uh, public education uh, was coming from a different direction than I expected it to <laughs> in this particular case. And of course, we're hoping that with a MOOC, we can do something like that too eventually. It seems like this course uh, represents the democratization of an, of an intelligent dialogue around dinosaurs. So what does that mean to you? Well, to me, um, of course, I've been around for a long time, <laughs> and I've seen a lot of changes. I mean, when I first got my job collecting dinosaurs in Alberta in 1976, at that time there was probably fewer than 30 people in the entire world working on dinosaurs. And now we're looking at hundreds, as I said. I have a good student body who works with me here. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of material we can work on, lots of research that we can do. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing to me when you see that public perception changes so much because uh, as people get more and more interested in dinosaurs, um, you get more and more reports of interesting specimens because people will go out there and look. And Alberta, of course, is one of the richest places in the world for this. 
um, trying to let people know that uh, we have these incredible resources in this part of the world. You don't even have to go very far. I mean, if you're at the University of Alberta, you can walk down into the valley and walk along the river valley. You can find dinosaur bones. And one of these days, somebody's going to find a, a pretty important specimen very close to the university. These are the kind of things that um, I think contribute back into the science in the long run. Um, but of course, uh, there's always a certain number of people who are, are skeptics about um, paleontology and evolution and all the rest of it. And so public education is something very important to us as well, uh, particularly for the long-term support of science. Um, dinosaurs becomes um, a hook that we can get people interested enough in science in general that they'll look into it and learn more about it. Um, so in the long run, I think that uh, dinosaurs and a dinosaur course like this can have huge benefits. And that's what I hope to see. If Dino 101 was successful, uh, hypothetically successful, what is the possibility for future massive online courses at the U of A? And what would it mean to the U of A if they could integrate online courses into their curriculum in the future? Well, of course, everybody's asking themselves for that that kind of question right now. And, um, you know, for us, when the Internet uh, first appeared, of course, we had no idea how people would ever make money off the Internet. Um, and yet uh, it's transformed the world, essentially. And there's no question anymore that uh, people do exist financially because of the internet now. <laughs> and uh, it's the same thing with the MOOCs. I mean, how, how do you compete with live lectures in terms of your ability to have some kind of impact? And of course, we've asked ourselves that and introduced as many things as we could into the lectures that we could maybe in PowerPoint displays or films or field trips and so on, but uh, still in a sort of a condensed version. Because MOOCs are generally free, we don't know where it's going to go and how the university is going to ultimately benefit from this. But uh, certainly it may end up being that um, with a larger awareness of the University of Alberta worldwide, that'll help us in terms of getting grants or attracting more high-quality students to the university. Uh, who knows? But uh, I think within the university itself, if this experiment works uh, using the MOOC as the basis for an introductory course, this could work very well for us as well. Uh, I don't think it's any secret that um, people generally don't necessarily like introductory courses because they do cover a lot of ground and they're not always fun to teach. You have very, very large classes and uh, you know it's, it's sometimes not as personal as it should be. Uh, if we can accomplish all the same goals, make it more interesting for the students as well, and then still get all your introductory material out of the way, maybe it is a good way to lead into the better, um, more in-depth courses that we have in the second, third, and fourth year. Dr. Phil Curry, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. <laughs> that was Dr. Phil Curry, curator of dinosaurs at the University of Alberta, a fellow at the Royal Society of Canada, and the instructor of the University of Alberta's first massive open online course, Dino 101. Registration for the class, which began on September 4th, is still open. Just visit ualberta.ca. Hi, my name is Petros Kuzmu, and you're not. 
I'm the president of the University of Alberta Students' Union, and you're listening to the CJSR edition on 88.5 FM. Welcome back to the CJSR edition. This week, thousands of wide-eyed undergraduates converged on the University of Alberta's North Campus, which can only mean one thing, school's back. But we here at the CJSR edition couldn't help but notice the confusion on many students' faces as they arrived on campus for the first time. The university is a confusing place where myth traverses fact. So our resident CJSR volunteer, Bob Brophy, decided to clarify some things. Shall I begin? Here are some facts about the University of Alberta. 39,500 students from all Canadian provinces and territories and 152 countries currently attend the University of Alberta. 18 faculties, 5 campuses, 39,000 students, school colors, green, green, gold. gold. The colors were suggested by the spouse of one of the original four professors who drew her inspiration from the autumn colors of the river valley. The green represents the wide stretches of prairie land flanked by deep spruce forests and is symbolic of hope and optimism. The gold represents the golden harvest fields and is symbolic of the light of knowledge. The University of Alberta's first president, Henry Marshall Torrey, at the inaugural convocation in 1908, challenged the university community, the province of Alberta, and future generations to remember that the modern state university has sprung from a demand on the part of the people themselves. The people demand that knowledge shall not be the concern of scholars alone. The uplifting of the whole people shall be its final goal. This should never be forgotten. 200 undergraduate programs, 170 graduate programs, 24 varsity sports programs. There are 3,620 academic staff at the University of 11, Alberta, 11,762 administrative staff, faculty to student ratio. One, one to, 11. to 11. Okay. Typical undergraduate tuition, $5,269 per year. International students pay $20,066.74 per year. The U of A has been home to 68 Rhodes Scholars the third most among universities in Canada. 400 research laboratories. The university was founded in 1908. Utility workers travel between campus buildings using 21 kilometers of bright utility tunnels, some of which date back to the 1920s. University of Alberta banned secret societies from campus for its first two decades barring students from belonging to fraternities. In 1929, the ban was lifted. The University of Alberta has Canada's second largest research laboratory system. 
endowment 800 million. There are four sororities on campus and nine fraternities. One of the university's most prominent discoveries has been the first successful treatment for type 1 diabetes. The university's impact on Alberta's economy is an estimated $12.3 billion annually, or 5% of the province's gross domestic product. With more than 15,000 employees, the university is Alberta's fourth largest employer. The North Campus is the original location for the University of Alberta. Located on the southern banks of the North Saskatchewan River, it has 150 buildings on 92 hectares, that's uh, 230 acres, of land. Lister Centre is the largest undergraduate residence complex in Canada. More than 240,000 alumni live worldwide. Henry Marshall Torrey was the university's first president. The cornerstone of the Rutherford Library was laid on November 25th 1948. 1948. The university motto, means whatsoever things are true. In 1970 and 71, there was an unexpected drop in student registration. Funding and budgets were slashed and there was a freeze on hiring staff. The university was in a $3.5 million deficit. Here is a list of notable U of A alumni. Former Governor General of Canada, Roland Mishner. Prime Minister, Joe Clark. Chief Justice of Canada, Beverly McLaughlin. Premier of Alberta, Peter Lohe. Nobel Laureate, Richard E. Taylor. Richard e. Taylor. E. Taylor. The median salary for a full-time professor at the University of Alberta in uh, 2012 was $126,549. The Tim Center had its first theatrical debut, Ring Around the Moon, in 1995. The Faculty of Agriculture began in 1915 with a staff of two. In the early 1960s, students planned the second student union building. It was completed in 1967. In 1911, Athabasca Hall became the first building to officially open its doors on River on Lot, River on lot, lot number, five. Number, five. number 5. It was headquarters for all of the university faculties as well as a student residence. Athabasca Hall was later condemned. However, in 1974, after a valiant battle by student residents, the historic structures received major renovations and modern retrofits. In 1984, the School of Native Studies was established. In the same auspicious year, the campus radio station, CJSR, CJSR went live CJSR. on January 7th. The Gateway Student Newspaper was founded 102 years ago on November 21st, 1910. And those were some facts about the University of Alberta. That's all the time we have left on this episode of the CJSR edition. This week, the program was produced by Speaking Into Microphones and by me, 
Matt Hergy. We produce the show in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Thank you very much today to Dr. Phil Curry and Omar Mualam. The CJSR edition is a spoken word project of CJSR FM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta. And our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on this series, you can always visit cjsrnews.com. And please consider subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. From everybody who worked on and contributed to today's show, thank you very much for tuning in. 